It is a pleasure for me tonight to have a young man here that I've known since he was just, I guess, in diapers, wasn't it, Ben Jerry? When he was born. <laughs> and he's now between 45 and 50. He's catching up to me age-wise. Almost 50 years ago, I was associate pastor in First Baptist Church, Roanoke, Virginia. Finished up my third year seminary at Southeastern Seminary. And in that church was a couple named Jim and Lena Sheeler. Jim Sheeler grew up in the Meadows of Dan in Virginia, and his family was a big bluegrass family. And so Jim plays guitar. They had three children, two daughters and a son, the son being the youngest one. And it was our children were little at the time. We have two. We have a daughter and a son in that order. Our children are about 50, which is just about the age of his older sisters. But we loved those children. I was an only child. And so Jim Sheeler has been the nearest to a brother that a man could have. And he still lives in Stewart, Virginia, has a cabin in the Meadows of Dan off the Blue Ridge Parkway that we go to as often as we can. It's hidden away, no television, no telephone, and my cell phone won't work, so it's right next to heaven. And we go there because it's a quiet place and I will not get those phone calls from Mike Griffin and people like that. <laughs> and Clay goes there and he goes each year for the Fiddler's Convention in Galax, Virginia and stays in that cabin. He has dibs on that cabin for that week, the second week of August, if I remember right. And Clay grew up in that family. And, of course, it's the Bluegrass family. In fact, that family, the Sheeler family, was one of the first families that was recorded. There were two families. What was the other name of the other family? Uh, there was a family that your dad's family recorded and another family. And I, was it the Carter family? Yeah. Yeah. So the family is full of Bluegrass musicians. If you, Anybody like Bluegrass music here? Oh, my goodness. We could be in the mountains of Virginia. <laughs> and uh, Buddy Pendleton, who won the Fiddler's Convention, what, five years straight, is out of that family. And Jimmy, uh, uh, Sammy Sheeler, who's the great banjo player, is in that family. And I wished he'd have brought his fiddle because Clay is an outstanding fiddler. And you play guitar also, do you not? A little bit. But it's delightful to have you here. He lives on the other side of Raleigh. And I happened to think about yesterday that Clay lived near here. And I thought, well, it might be too far for him to come. So my, I called his dad and left word. And he got in touch with Clay. And Clay called today and said he's going to come tonight. And so we're delighted to have Clay Sheeler with us. And brother, it's so good to see you. I preached in a series of services similar to this up in the mountains of Virginia at Meadows of Dan when he was in the third grade. And, and the Lord did some things, and, and Clay came to me uh, after the meetings were over and said, 
Brother Jerry, I have made a decision also. And he was in the third grade. And now he uh, works with the worship team in his church on the other side of Raleigh. And I've asked Clay to come and lead us in prayer. Would you, dear, dear brother? He's the nearest to a nephew I've got. I love their kids just like they were my own. So you come and is this, will this be on, sir? Good. Ripkin. Our Father, we just thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. Thank you that when we were your enemies, that you made us yours. That you set your love on us even before the foundation of the world. So thank you that we can gather tonight and hear the treasure of your word. We pray for Jerry tonight as he opens the word to us. And Lord, we pray with the psalmist that you will open our eyes and show us wonderful things. In your word, and we pray we'll be changed from it. Renew us, transform us into the glorious image of our perfect Savior, Jesus. It's in his name and for his sake and glory we ask it. Amen. Thank you, brother. We began Sunday morning with seeing that God is a real person who can be affected by our behavior, who is affected by our behavior. We saw that God was grieved to his heart. We saw that Jesus sobbed and wailed over Jerusalem because of their rejection of their only hope. And we saw that the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 4.30 is grieved when we sin and tolerate sin in our lives. And the Word of God says, Do not, do not grieve the Spirit You see, the Holy Spirit is a person, a real person who inhabits the believer. And he is the one that puts some desires in our own heart. Two of which are these. I want to get rid of sin. I want to get rid of my ugly temper. I want to get rid of careless words. I want to get rid of lustful thoughts. I want to live pure and holy. I want to become like Jesus Christ. He's the one that puts those desires there. He changes our desires and gives us new desires to get rid of that which is unlike the Lord Jesus and to put on the things and to have control our lives, the things that are like the Lord Jesus. And then we saw Sunday night. God's autobiography, when he says the Lord descended in a cloud, there's a mystery about him, but he says the Lord, the Lord, that's the word Yahweh. It's used 6,823 times in the New, in the, in the Old Testament. He descended in the cloud, he said the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. A God. The word El or Elohim. From the word Elohim, sovereign, ruler, one, Yahweh, God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding, overflowing in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity. 
And it goes on and says the rest of the things by which he behaves and ends with the fact not holding the guilty unpunished. Those who deliberately rebel and reject him. And so we saw that Sunday night. And then last night we saw this stunning truth about the fact that God dwells in two places. He dwells in the high and holy place. He's the all-majestic one. He's above all there is. There is nothing even second close or close second to Him. He is the one who dwells in the high and holy place. But the incredible second part of that out of Isaiah is He dwells with the contrite and lowly. Now think of that. God said of David, he's a man after my heart. Even after he sinned with Bathsheba, God still considered a David, David as a man after his heart. Why? You see, the very moment that Nathan confronted David, what did he do? He repented. And he repented in Psalm 51. And he comes to the very conclusion. And he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And I was reading just the other day in Psalms where the Lord's presence came to him in the night. In the night. Why? Because God dwells with the lowly and the contrite of heart. And he knew, he knew that God's presence came to him in the night. And so we see that God is exalted, but we saw in the life of the Lord Jesus, the only place he ever spoke of his own heart, he said, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Think of that. Jesus says, I am lowly in heart. He had said, I and the Father are one. He had said to Thomas, he who's seen me has seen the Father. That means if the Lord Jesus Christ, who is all the fullness of God bodily, if he is lowly in heart, what does that mean? It means that sovereign God who dwells in the high and holy place and with those who are contrite in heart is also lowly in heart. We have to think about that. That's not been our usual understanding of this, this God we read about in the Word. But he is lowly in heart. Because Jesus was the full expression of all the Father is. And the result of that is the fact the only place I can meet God is on the ground of humility. He resists the proud. They may be religious, but proud. They may be church members, but proud. They may have been baptized, but proud. They may be serving in the church, but proud. They may be leading singing, but proud. They may be preaching in pulpits, but proud. You see, I told some men yesterday who are headed for ministry or who are in ministry, fear pride like a king cobra or a black mamba 
Fear pride. Pride is a curse. And the Word of God says, clothe yourself with humility. Fear pride. And I believe one of the reasons, dear folks, that we're not seeing God move in these Baptist churches of our convention and even other evangelical churches is because we have not learned the lesson that I must humble myself and keep on humbling myself before Almighty God. If I want to meet with God and I want God's presence with me, I guarantee you something, He'll not come if there's pride in my heart. I will not enter His presence if there's pride in my heart. We can come to church on Sunday morning and sing the songs and give the offering and applaud the sermon and think we've gone through worship and we have not. We have not met God if there's pride in our heart because He resists the proud. We need to have that inscribed in our souls, folks. He resists the proud. He stiffs armed the proud. He has nothing to do with the proud. Pride is the curse of the fall. If you eat that forbidden fruit, you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. Pride. If you're the Son of God, turn those stones into bread. Prove who you are. Pride. Have you seen the pride of your own soul? You can't be in God's presence and not see the pride of your own soul. I feel like sometimes in His presence I'm nothing but a massive cancer tumor of pride. Pride lurks in every part of my being. It's part and parcel of my sinful nature. And it will raise its ugly head any chance it gets. You're driving down 264 and somebody cuts in front of you and you say, What's wrong with you? Get out of my way. That's pride. You don't want to admit to your wife that you said an unkind word. That's pride. You don't want to go to your children and say, Son, I did not teach you the Bible and pray with you when you were growing up. I am so sorry. That's pride. Men, you won't say to your wife, You know, honey, I have neglected praying with you. And I'm so sorry. We should have been praying together, and I'm so sorry. That's pride. I could go on and on and on. I think you get the picture. I was sitting at my desk one day preparing a message. I think Mike was there uh, at that time, but I was preparing a message out of Genesis. And I realized something about the way God deals with us, and I realized I had not dealt with my children that way. I mean, they're grown. They have children of their own. 
My children are around 50 years old. This is probably seven years ago. I picked up the phone and called my son. And I said to him, Jeff, I realized something from studying how God deals with his people. And I didn't deal with you that way. And I ask you to forgive me. I did the same thing for my daughter. Because you see, I want the presence of God. I want to be like Jesus. And that's not going to happen if I let pride rule in my life. It will not happen. I don't want to just get to heaven. I want to become like Christ. And it's a process for the rest of my days. And I want to be as much like Jesus as I possibly can before I die. Because that will make a difference in my reward in heaven. And that's forever. So sovereign God is a humble God. Now tonight we're going to take it one step further and look at the life of the Lord Jesus. And I'll tell you when to turn to the scripture. Otherwise, I'm just going to give you the reference and tell you what it says. But in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says this, Though he was rich, meaning Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. I want you to hear that well. Though he was rich, and we're going to understand this better in a moment, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Now if you look in your Bible at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Verses 5 through 8. Familiar verses. Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Your translation may say emptied himself. Made himself nothing, taken the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It tells us first that the eternal Son of God made himself nothing. The eternal God made himself nothing. Another translation says he emptied himself. Now what does this mean? It's, the Greek word is kenosis. 
It's called the kenotic theory. Men have debated what this means through the generations. But there's one thing that's quite clear. The Lord Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, this is before He became Jesus, equal with the Father, present with the Father, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it says the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The Word means face to face with God. He was equal with God the Father as the Spirit is equal with God the Father. The Son of God owned everything. For by Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. And so he owned everything, he possessed all power, he had all authority, he had all sovereignty, he had all glory and honor and majesty, but he gave it up and laid it down. In other words, the position as equal with God the Father, he gave it up. in order to be born on the earth as a human being. He always experienced the bliss of the Trinity. Angels at His every beckon. No suffering. No pain. No heartache. Eternal bliss in perfect fellowship with His Father and the Spirit. Profound mysteries beyond our comprehension, but true according to the Word of God. He emptied Himself. What does that mean? He did not give up His Godness, but He gave up the privileges of His Godness in order to become a human being. He gave up his right to exercise lordship over everything. He gave up his authority and would not use it for his own benefit. He gave up the status of ruler to become fully human in mind, soul, and body. I want you to hear something quite well. And if I had the time, I could prove it to you right through the Word of God. Jesus lived a life exactly like you have to live it. He had to learn as a little boy, just like you have to learn. He had to grow up, just like you had to grow up. He worked as a carpenter in a carpenter shop all his adult life until he was 30 years old. Calloused hands, dirty fingernails, irate customers. He was known as the carpenter of Nazareth and nobody knew who he was except his mother. He lived an ordinary, obscure life like any other human being and nobody knew who he was. When he was born into the world, listen, he was born to an unwed teenage girl. Talk about reputation. 
God wasn't concerned about her reputation. She was betrothed to Joseph. But she had never had sexual relations with Joseph. She was unwed. She was an unwed mother. That's why the Pharisees said, we know who our father is. She was, he was born in an animal shelter. Some say it was a barn, some say it was a cave. Tradition says it was a cave, an a, a cave where animals went to get out of the weather. There wasn't room in the inn, so he's born in a cave. Now listen. God is saying something to us through this. Mary was a 16 or 17-year-old peasant girl. Joseph was not wealthy. When they gave an offering, they had to give a bird. That's what poor people gave. He wasn't born into wealth. He wasn't born into a palace. And he wasn't born into privilege. Now listen, sovereign God arranged that. Sovereign God chose a teenage girl. Sovereign God chose an unwed teenage girl. Sovereign God purposed that she make this long 70-mile trip through treacherous country in the last week of her pregnancy. Now you tell me, ladies, which OBGYN would give you permission to do that? But it was 70 miles through treacherous country, three days traveling in her last week of pregnancy to a young teenage girl. Surely God could have arranged that she have a room in the inn, you know, just a private corner of this, of this room because she was, of course, with child, just ready for birth any day. She didn't have a doctor to tell her, you're pretty well near. God could have surely arranged a place for her. He didn't do it. Because he wanted his son to be born in a barn where the animals had slobbered and there were animal droppings and there were flies and insects. He wanted his son born there. Why? Because it's humility. Listen, all of the birth of Jesus Christ, everything surrounding it speaks of humility, lowliness. It's what God values. He doesn't value our pride and our prestige and our money and our nice buildings. He doesn't value that. He values that which is lowly and humble. We Americans have never gotten a hold of that, even in our churches. And then when the announcement was made, did he go to Herod? Did he go to the Pharisees and the religious leaders? Did he go to the leaders of that day? No. God made the announcement through angels to shepherds out in the field. They were the lowest. Of all the people, lowly shepherds in the field. And that's where God made the announcement. Listen, dear ones, I want to tell you something. God is shouting through all these circumstances. I value humility. I value lowliness. I chose an unwed girl. I chose poverty. I chose a barn. I chose shepherds to announce my son's birth. John the Baptist, his own cousin. 
born of Elizabeth. Didn't even know who this man was. God had to tell John the Baptist, this is the Messiah. The one on whom you see the Spirit descend like a dove. This is the Messiah. It was his own cousin. But Jesus was so ordinary looking, so human, lived like a human, totally human. That God had to tell John, your cousin, he's the one. That must have been stunning revelation. The early church fathers and even Isaiah prophesied it said that Jesus was unattractive, ordinary. He was not an attractive man. There is no form of comeliness that we should desire him, no form of beauty that we should desire him. There was nothing about the Lord Jesus that would be striking. When I was a teenage boy, I thought Jesus must have been the handsomest of men and there must have been something quite set apart about the way he looked. The truth is it's not. He was unattractive, according to Isaiah and the early church fathers. He wasn't somebody you'd take a second glance and say, wow. Why would God do that? Because you see, I don't have time to go into all of this, but I tell you this, if you study the word, you discover everything Jesus was is the opposite of what we value. We value good looks. Women go to great extent to make themselves better looking. You see on the magazines, pretty people. We elevate pretty people. God said, not so for my son. He will have no beauty. That we shall naturally desire him. He remained fully God in the flesh, fully God. But he was also fully human. The thing is, he chose. To empty himself and live just like I have to live with no more than I have. He only lived and ministered by the Holy Spirit and never used his divine power for himself. That's the nature of the temptation in the wilderness. If you're the son of God, there's your temptation. Prove who you are. I know who you are. Prove it. If you're the son of God, turn those stones into bread. Jesus would not use his God power. He knew if he was to eat as a human being, his father would have to feed him. Because if I'm to eat, my father has to provide. Then he became a bondservant. That's verse 7. 
He became a bondservant. He became a human being, and as a human being, he became a bondservant. Do you know that's what we are as God's children? We are bondservants? That's a love slave. Listen, dear folks, bondservants have no rights. If you're sitting here tonight thinking that you're a Christian and you can possess your own rights, you're deceived. Bondservants have no rights. They're owned by a master. When I was a pastor in my first church, I was studying the word. I was concerned about these people, traditional Baptist folks that sat in my congregation, and I never saw them growing in grace and truth and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. They would bicker and they would fuss and they would criticize, and I wondered, what in the world is wrong? These are Christians. I had such a desire to know the Lord and to walk in his fullness, and I taught that truth, but it didn't seem just like water on a duck's back. Or on the top of a rock. And I kept wondering, what in the world is wrong? And one day I was studying Romans 10, 9, and 10. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus the Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For, for with the mouth confession, for with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, and bingo. I believe the Spirit of God spoke to me and I took my concordance down off the bookshelf and I began to look through the Scriptures and I discovered something and I was Southern Baptist through and through but I began to discover something. I had always heard, come receive Jesus Christ your Savior and I'd also heard this and later on, make Him Lord of your life now that you're saved. I looked up every reference on the word Savior in the New Testament. You know what I discovered? The word Savior is only used 24 times in the New Testament. That's not even one time a book. The word Lord is used, some say over 400 times, others say even more than that. But the word Lord is used over 400 times in the New Testament. And what I discovered was the word Savior is always connected with God and Savior or Lord and Savior. There is not one single reference that says, come receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and be saved. Every single reference says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And what I realized was that in the days of the Roman Empire, for a Roman to say Jesus is Lord, he was saying Caesar is not Lord. For a Jew to say Jesus is Lord, he was saying He was willing to be excommunicated from his family. And in the countries where you have been involved, they know it could be certain death. I discovered that you cannot receive what Jesus gives until you bow to who Jesus is. There was a man that I knew named Stephen Oford, had his doctorate in theology. I was so shaken by what I had seen in the Word of God as a young man in my late 20s. I called Stephen Oford, and he called me back, and I said, Dr. Oford, I have been through the Word of God. I've been through the concordance, and this is what I have seen. I need to check it out with you. I want to make sure that it's right. And he said, Jerry, that's exactly what I preach.
Then I understood how it is that people can sit in church just like this. Say, I'm a Christian. I trusted Jesus as my Savior. But they've never come and said, Lord Jesus, here is everything. You are sovereign Lord. And from this moment on, I have no rights. I lay down all my rights. I am your bondservant to do whatever you want, whenever you want it, no matter what it costs me. That's the message of the New Testament. Last year, I was with a young lady who was just a child in my church. She's now nearly 50 years old. We were sitting there. She had lost a daughter to a tragic car wreck, and she was brokenhearted over the loss of that precious daughter. And she sat there with tears and she said, I remember you're standing in front of the Lord's supper table with that bunch of keys and saying every key has to be placed on the altar. She was just a little child when I preached that message. But she had never forgotten it. And she said it so hard. And I wonder if there's somebody here tonight You've said you trust Jesus as Savior, but you're holding on to your own rights. It's your money, it's your pleasure, it's your time, it's your future, it's everything for you. How can you say Jesus is Lord? If he doesn't own you lock, stock, and barrel, mind, will, and emotions, your entire being, all that you are, and all that you have. You see, that doesn't happen by osmosis, and that will not happen by just listening to Pastor Jared. That only happens by a decision, a decision. Hear me well. When Jesus said to Matthew, come follow me, he had to get up and follow Jesus. It's a decision. It comes a time when you get down before the Lord Jesus Christ and you say, here I am. I hold nothing back. I'm wholly yours, totally yours forever and ever. I will do anything you want. Then you can say, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. And there comes a peace in your life, and there can be the fullness of God's Spirit in your life. Jesus became a bondservant. And listen to me. It was a deliberate choice on his part. He made a deliberate moment choice. To leave heaven, empty himself, and be born of that young virgin girl. He made a deliberate choice for your sake and for mine. And that's why he can say in Luke 9, 23, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. What does that mean? Lay down your rights. Secondly, take up your cross. Be willing to die to yourself through whatever you have to go through. And follow me. What does that mean? Obey me no matter what I show you to do. Why can he say that to me? Because he can say also to me, Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. For your sake, I laid aside my heavenly rights. I stepped out of heaven and was born of a virgin and had to grow up as a baby to manhood just like you for your sake. 
I became a bondservant with no rights of my own. And Jerry, it took me all the way to the cross and crucified by the hands of men that I loved for your sake. And so if you want to be mine, I'm not asking you to do something that I myself have not done to the infinite degree. I'm asking you to lay down your earthly rights to yourself for my sake. I gave up all my heavenly rights for your sake. I'm asking you to be willing to do whatever I want you to do, no matter what it costs you, because that's what I've done for you. And if you understood with your heart how much I love you, you would understand that to lose your life is to gain life. The Lord Jesus said that He came The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He said, I'm among you as the one who serves. You see, his humble servant heart is seen clearly in John 13. The Lord Jesus didn't wash those disciples' dirty feet to be an example. Hear me well on this, folks. He didn't wash those dirty feet in John 13. Even the feet of his betrayer Judas. He took off his outer garments and clothed himself with a towel. And he went around to wash those disciples' dirty feet, one after the other after the other. Peter said, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. It's awfully hard to receive the Lord Jesus to wash your feet because of pride. He washed Judas's feet. When he finished, he said, as I've done to you, so you do to one another. Now listen to me. He wasn't saying, well, I'm going to teach these boys something about humility. I'm going to wash their feet. Do you know why he washed their feet? Because it is his heart. He has a servant heart. There is nobody else who was going to wash their feet. It's in his heart. It's in his heart. That's who he is because he is humble. He's a humble servant. The third appearance of his resurrection Peter had said, Lord, I mean, uh, guys, I'm going to go fishing. So Peter and John said, I'm going with you. So some of the guys went with Peter and John. They went down, got in a boat and went out on the lake of Gennesaret, Sea of Galilee, and began fishing. And all of a sudden, a man appeared on the seashore. John said, It's the Lord. 
the sovereign resurrected Lord. It's the Lord. Peter must have been stripped down naked, fishing in the heat of the night, the morning. He quickly clothed himself, jumped in the sea, and swam ashore. And here was the resurrected Son of God. There was breakfast cooked. And the Lord Jesus had prepared breakfast for his disciples and served them breakfast in his resurrected form. Because his heart is humble. He has a servant heart. He humbly obeyed all the way to that excruciating, indescribable, horrible death on the cross. But we also see how he's been exalted. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't need for you to turn here, but I want you just to listen as I read something. His name is above every name, and when he appeared in the Revelation, this is what John wrote, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. This is the glorified Lord Jesus. The very one who had leaned back against the breast of the Lord Jesus at the Last Supper. You see, they laid on couches beside the table. I always thought that was a better way to eat. Never done it, but it sounded like good to me. But the, John just laid right beside the Lord Jesus, and so he could just lean back like this and speak to the Lord Jesus while they laid side by side on these couches by the table. He was the beloved disciple. He seemed to understand the heart of Jesus more than any of the other disciples. And yet, when he saw this exalted, resurrected, sovereign Lord that he had known as Jesus of Nazareth, who was now Jesus, the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He fell at his feet as one dead. So glorious, awesome was the sight.
First Thessalonians chapter 4, 4, verse 16 through 17 tells us when he returns glorified and triumphant. He will descend with a shout and with the voice of the archangel. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 15b says, The blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone dwells in unapproachable light, so he's now, this moment, no longer the humble, lowly Lord Jesus. He's now the exalted Jesus Christ. But I want you to listen to something very carefully. Don't need to turn. But I want you to listen to these words. When I saw this, I wanted to get down on my face. In fact, I probably did. I wanted to get down on my face. If you want the reference, it's Luke 12, verse 35 through 37. Jesus is speaking about his return, and he says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, now listen, truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. We learn in Revelation there's going to be a wedding feast and upon the return of this sovereign king of kings when he gathers his people just like he did at the Last Supper, he will gird himself in appropriate dress. He will have us at the table, and he will serve us. Can you imagine the Lord Jesus Christ in all the glory of what John saw? Saying, Jared, take your place at the table. I want to serve you my meal. Or Jeff, take your place at the table. I'm going to serve you my meal. You see, God is humble 
although he's high and lifted up. The Lord Jesus, born in humility, lived his life in complete humility. Even after his resurrection in humility, served his disciples breakfast down by the lake. And because it is his heart, when he comes back, he will serve us again. I don't know how this affects you. But I can tell you, the only words that I can say are what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, when he said, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The word says, Have this mind among yourselves, which was also yours in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, clothe yourselves with humility. Colossians 3, 12 says, put on humility. Now, we talk about how we're, as Christians, are supposed to be like Jesus and grow in the likeness of Christ. Let me tell you what that means, very simply. What does it look like to be like Jesus? He came in love. By this all men shall know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. Folks, the world laughs at the church because he doesn't see us really, really, really loving each other like Jesus loves us. He came in love. He lived in humility. He is still an humble servant. He walked in righteousness, doing what was right in the sight of God in every circumstance. He served with compassion. And this is how we should live. You see, 1 John 2, 6, listen to it carefully. It says, whoever, we're the whoever's, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way he walked. If you're not walking in the same way he walked, how can you say you're his? Well, we all fall short. Indeed, we do. But you see, even though we fall short, we keep pursuing to walk in humility and purity and love and kindness and gentleness and holiness and righteousness and joyfulness and thankfulness. It is our heart's desire to become increasingly everything that he is. And it doesn't happen by just coming to church. It only happens as we make deliberate decisions to be that way with him. So truly saved people Truly saved people want to be like him and do what he commands. To become like him and walk like him. And professing Christians who don't really care to become like Jesus are deceived. Church members deceived. 
and they will go to hell. I wonder, has there been a moment that you made the choice, just like Jesus did, has there been a moment when you made the choice and you got down before him and you said, Lord, everything, everything, you are sovereign Lord and master of my whole being and I am a bondservant with no rights. Have you ever made that decision? Have you ever said, Lord, humble Lord, I want to be like you. And you've said for me to humble myself. I get down before you to humble myself and say, do whatever you must do in my life that I will become like Jesus. That is true Christianity. I'm going to invite you tonight If there's something that you need to do like that, that you would come, you can kneel by the front pew, you can kneel here. There's something about just making a deliberate choice. You can kneel by the pew. You can stand up. I think before such a Savior as this, it's always good to bow. Often when I'm alone by myself, I just get face down on the floor. If I could get lower, I would. Can you say tonight, Lord Jesus, everything I am and have is yours. I have no rights. And I choose the way of humility and death to self all the way to the cross. We wait. Pastor, you come, sir.